So, good evening. I'm wondering how you're all doing after your first 24 hours of meditation practice. Hard to read. I'm sure it's a variety of things. We'd like to congratulate you for still being here. It's not easy, as many of you have probably discovered. How many for you it wasn't easy today sitting and walking and trying to practice, being aware all day. Okay, that's pretty much most of you. <clears throat> Good to know. Yeah, not easy to come into a different environment and come out of the full velocity of our lives into an environment that's very slow, very undistracted, no gadgets to Twitter our day away, and to be with ourselves, to be mostly with our mind. You know, we look in the mirror very closely when we're on retreat, and often not so pretty or easy. Maybe not quite what we expected when we signed up for the retreat and we thought of days and days of bliss and quiet and tranquility and love and happiness and Maybe you had elements of that today. But there's also just dealing with the conditions of the body and the mind and, and seeing all the ways that we're not present, the ways that we're not aware. So I want to speak to that tonight, speak to this practice of mindfulness, of awareness, of what it is, why we do it, what we explore and discover in that journey. <clears throat> there was once a person on retreat, she said, I'd rather be at work. She was having a hard time and you know, sometimes being in familiar places are easier than just being with ourselves. The French philosopher Louis Pasteur once said, most of the world's problems would be solved if we could learn how to sit by ourselves in a room quietly for a few hours doing nothing. And that was before the advent of smartphones, which is even more difficult now, as I'm sure some of you know. I often come across this ad when I'm preparing this talk on the first night, and it's an ad that somebody once sent me that's it's for ultra-meditation. In 28 minutes, you'll be meditating like a Zen monk, it says. It's this woman's levitating with some headphones and discovering the five-level ultra-meditation system for transcendence, peak experience, and discovering your place in the universe, all in 28 minutes. You've been here now for about 28 hours. So you can sign up after the retreat. It's... I actually tried it. Someone gave me a copy at some point, <laughs> some years later. I think I fell asleep. <laughs> There's no shortcuts in this business, however many ways that mindfulness is being touted now, the one-minute meditation wonders and whatnot. And there's no shortcuts to working with ourselves and working with our mind. <clears throat> so it's interesting... Um, talking about mindfulness and teaching mindfulness these days because it's so becomes so um, prolific in our culture. The amount of books that are out now on mindfulness and its applications and the different uh, courses and classes and, um, and I'm involved in some of that teaching and training. I do mindfulness teaching in different companies and I've taught in schools and prisons and uh, different places, and it's wonderful, it's beautiful to see how these teachings, which when I first started practicing, which was 30 years ago in East London, it was very weird and very obscure. And if you, if you told someone you, were, you practiced Buddhist meditation, they would look at you as if you would just said you were from Mars, and especially if they were your family. Um, and now it's sort of, you know, it's really available and accessible in books, online, in retreats and classes. So it's a great thing. We even have a congressman, Tim Ryan, who's a big advocate of mindfulness and is bringing mindfulness into Congress, uh, teaching on Capitol Hill. 
And if there's one place we need mindfulness in the world, it's in, in D.C. Uh, there's a phenomenal amount of research happening. Um, four or five hundred studies a year now, research studies on mindfulness, tracking various effects on the brain and its um, implications for attention and various mental health issues and ADHD and all kinds of wonderful applications. I was just on a conference recently, a mindfulness researchers conference, and one researcher was tracking how mindfulness supports working with pain and he was trying to figure out what's the minimal amount of pain, minimal, minimal amount of meditation you can do to have an influence on one's pain uh, appraisal and pain threshold tolerance. And so he taught these people mindfulness meditation for 20 minutes for, and they practiced it for four times in a week before they were administered these pain protocols. And their capacity to tolerate pain and work with the pain increased by 35% which was statistically quite significant. So um, not that that necessarily means anything in itself, except that um, this practice has, does have a profound impact on the way that we relate to our experience, as you have been finding out and will find out. So this practice of mindful awareness wasn't, hasn't, hasn't always been so... Um, abundant, as I said, and in, in the time of the Buddha, who really sort of discovered this way, this practice, um, it was uh, quite radical for him to uh, shift attention away from what was traditionally considered the path to God or to awakening, uh, which was through ritual and through um, self-mortification and all kinds of other practices, um, and concentration and absorption practices. He uh, he cultivated this capacity of awareness to know himself, to know ourselves, to know the mind, and to discover that what brings suffering, what brings freedom and happiness by studying his own mind and body in the same way that we've, we've done today and we'll be doing all week. He said, just as in the last months of the rains in autumn when the sky is clear and cloudless and the sun is ascending the sky and overpowers the space immersed in darkness, and shines and blazes and dazzles. In the same way, all skillful qualities are rooted in mindfulness, converge in mindfulness, and mindfulness is considered the foremost among them. So for the Buddha, this was a really central quality on the path, which is why we give it so much attention here. So what is, what is mindfulness? What is this thing called awareness that we've been cultivating here? So the root word, the root word is sati, and it has as many of these original, these words that are uh, from the Pali language, which was a language developed specifically for um, Buddhist teaching, uh, has a very complex uh, meanings. Um, so I'm curious, I'll just ask you, what is mindfulness? Anybody like to say? Paying attention to the present moment. Paying attention. <laughs> Someone's been on the course with John Kabat-Zinn. <laughs> Paying attention to the present moment without judgment. Da, 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 da. Yes, okay. What else? From your experience, what's mindfulness? Or what's a quality, what's an aspect of mindfulness? Awareness. Insight. Insight? Mm-hmm. Care. Care. Mm-hmm. Purposeful. Purposeful. Having a direct experience. Direct experience, mm-hmm. Presence, mm-hmm. deliberate. deliberate, intentional. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's many different facets to this this quality of attention, of awareness, and uh, the many translations, uh, including mindfulness, awareness, self-recollection, reflexive awareness, retention, recollecting, mindfulness, memory, remembering, and there's no there's no one word that really accurately describes it. The, the word I'm currently using is, is, is a clear awareness, uh, clarity of attention, lucid awareness, sometimes known as bare attention. And it's a quality, this capacity to, to, be, to know, to be aware of what's happening in our experience. Very simply, very directly, as we've been doing all day, so when you hear a sound, 
is a moment of presence, of awareness, quite effortless, quite natural. So the Buddha had some interesting similes for this quality of mindfulness. One of them was, and I like this one, it really relates to how we've been orienting the practice today, the, the simile of a, a cow herder. So in India and in any rural country where um, there's, there's herds of cows and the, the, the cow herders are tending to the cows so they don't you know, wander into the crops. So the image he gives is the, of the cow herder sitting relaxed in the shade of a tree with his back against the tree, watching over the field of cows, but relaxed and present. Right? So it's not a cat over the mouse hole, watching every little micro-movement, but relaxed, spacious, panoramic view, but also alert, attentive, responsive to if, if there's a need. I like, that. I like that metaphor a lot. So there's a quality, that sense of relaxation, but openness. He uses a simile of a watchtower, you know, standing, like a, or in our case, maybe a you know, high-rise building, looking down so we have a panoramic view. Also, surgeons probe. Sometimes we, we, the attention, the awareness gets very microscopic, very detailed. Um, another analogy is of a gatekeeper in a castle. So in these castle towns, fortified towns, there was a gatekeeper and they monitored who entered and left. And so mindfulness helps guard uh, the, the mind and the heart f- to support wholesome skillful qualities from arising and to uh, prevent less skillful uh, qualities from entering. So in the the context of the Buddhist teachings, mindfulness is always taught not as an end in itself, but as a way to support wisdom, as a way to support knowing, as a way to support understanding what's happening, to understand with wisdom ourselves, our life, reality, so we can learn how to navigate our experience with responsiveness and skillfulness. So that in, in, in that sense, there's, there's, you can make a distinction between wise mindfulness and unwise mindfulness. So unwise mindfulness would be using mindfulness to support ends that aren't so uh, skillful. So for instance, a thief or um, a sniper may be very, very attentive Right, may have a very precise attention, but they're not mindful in the sense that the Buddha is speaking about mindfulness because they're not supporting wholesome states of mind. The pickpocket only sees the pocket, not the person. So let's just a, give a little backdrop to the practice, but what's actually happening here today? And one of the first insights you may have noticed is you're actually not that present. Anybody notice how unpresent they were? How unmindful most of the time we are somewhere? You know? And as teachers, we hear a lot of stories about what's happening. So it might, you might look around the room and go, everyone looks really present and aware and they look like Buddhas when they sit and I'm the only one who's completely clueless and just spaced out and thinking about lunch all day. But actually, when you take a look, there's a lot of stuff going on there that doesn't look quite so Buddha-like. Yeah. I remember one person from a retreat some time ago who was an architect, and this, this room is an architect's dream. He spent the, the whole retreat thinking about how, do this, how, do they, how is it supported, and what's the beams, and how do they, the angles, and, or and the interior decorators are repainting this color of the room back here, and... Um, you know, so whatever our particular inclination is. <clears throat> so we just, so one of the things we see is how lost in thought we are. You know, we th- the studies show we think somewhere between 60 and 90,000 thoughts a day, which is about one a second. And a study that Harvard did, which I think is a great study, they had people they asked people, they pinged people on their cell phones many times a day and they asked them three questions. What are you doing? Are you present to what you're doing? Are you thinking about something else? And how do you feel afterwards? That sounds like four questions. Anyhow, that's some... And, uh, and then they tallied all this research. They had several hundred thousand pieces of data and the, the 
Well, how much do you think people were spacing out in the day? What percent? 10? 20? 85. <laughs> so on average, people were spaced out about 46.9% of the day. So um, if you add in sleep and the fact that we're spaced out half the day, that's a lot of time that we're not present. But what was interesting about the survey was that they asked how they felt after, if, if they were indeed not present to what they were doing, how they felt, like when they were daydreaming or fantasizing, whatever they were doing. And they consistently reported feeling much less happy. The people who were present to what they were doing, even if it was a mindless chore, you know, like cleaning or shopping or cooking, that actually that provided a much greater degree of well-being. Which, of course, we know in our experience, when we're simply present to something, it doesn't matter what it is, there's a certain degree of satisfaction to it than when we're somewhere else. So we're not present because we think, because we space out. We're also not present because we don't want to be here, as was pointed to this afternoon, this this morning, because we don't want to feel stuff. We don't want to feel our emotions. We don't want to feel difficulty or boredom or frustration or irritation or restlessness or physical pain. or right? A lot of things that aren't so attractive to be with. So what do we do? We start making something up. We start planning our next vacation and what we're going to cook when we get home and or whatever our you know, thought of the day is. Or sometimes we just think, you know, there's something better to do than just being present. There's something more interesting going on somewhere else. And I can just fantasize and proliferate about it so the poet Billy Collins, in one of his poems about, uh, it's called In the Moment, he says, um, I could feel the day offering itself to me and I wanted nothing more than to be in the moment. But which moment? Not this one, or that one, or this other one, or any of those that were scuttling by didn't seem perfectly right for me. And besides, I was too knotted up with questions about the past and his tall, evasive sister, the future. And so the priceless moments of the day were squandered one by one or more likely a thousand at a time with quandary and pointless interrogation. All I wanted to be was a pea of being inside the green pot of time, but that was not going to happen today. I had to admit to myself. Does that sound familiar? Not this one, not that one. So as I mentioned yesterday, you know, some of the things that we need as we're practicing is a lot of patience. A lot of patience with our mind, with our meandering, our wandering. You know, we come back, we return out of the trance of thinking and daydreaming, you know, hundreds if not thousands of times a day. And it's not wrong, it's not bad, it's just what the mind does. And it's what we've conditioned uh, our mind to do. And if so what, whatever we see in here is just what we practiced the last 20, 30 years. So in our lives, what do we practice? We practice thinking a lot and planning and worrying and comparing and judging and analyzing. So guess what shows up here? So we get to see, oh, this is where I've been hanging out. As the writer Annie Lamotte says, my mind is a dangerous neighborhood. I choose, to, I choose to not go there alone. So we see, oh, I'm hanging out in all these neighborhoods. They're not, they're not really great. I wonder what else is possible. And so these teachings are saying there is something possible. There's another way we can be that's more conducive for peace, for well-being. So another quality that's really important is the quality of beginner's mind, which in a way is very akin to mindfulness. When we're really present, we do actually have a quality of beginner's mind, which is a quality that's fresh, that's experiencing the raindrops or the sounds or your breath or the rice pudding or whatever it is as if for the first time. And it's very alive, it's very um, immediate. There's a directness to that. So that's another aspect of mindfulness. This is from the poet Mary Oliver, who against another poem about rain a blackwater pond, the tossed waters have settled with after a night of rain. I dip in my cupped hands and I drink a long time. It tastes like stone, like leaves, like fire. 
It falls cold into my body, waking the bones. I hear them deep inside whispering, Oh, what was that beautiful thing that just happened? What was that beautiful thing that just happened where she drank a sip of water? How many times do we go and get the faucet and drink some water and go, wow, what was that beautiful thing that just happened? No, it's just like, oh, don't even notice. We're on to the next thing. I was out hiking the other day in South Marin, not far from here, and there was a spring. And I did get to drink in that way from, you know, right from the source. And it was a beautiful thing. But we can have that in any moment. So mindfulness also has this quality of bare attention and someone spoke to it, the immediacy of experience, the directness of experience. There's a poem by Kohad who goes like this, I cast my brush aside, from here on I'll speak to the moon face to face. So coming directly, immediately into our experience. And again, as I think I said yesterday, or sometime uh, the noticing whether there's a quality or an aspect of ac- acceptance in your experience. This is really a, f- a foundational quality for this practice. Can I be present to what is? Can I allow it to be here? Whatever it is. We so often have such strong demands of life and such strong preference of how things should be rather than allowing it to be as it is. Right? And when we're when we demanding life be a certain way, we, we suffer, we're in contention. When we can actually allow things to be as they are, there's a certain peacefulness. So this is a, a reading that speaks to this um, from the Zen tradition. I vow to choose what is. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there's sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. So it doesn't mean that we leave it there at acceptance. We, the, the, the acceptance, the allowing, the meeting experience as it is, allows for this wise response. Allows for wise action. So the good news, as we've been pointing to today, is this quality of presence, of awareness, Clarity is actually already here. It's available. It's the nature of our own mind. The nature of our own mind. So let's do a little exercise just to to, uh, explore that. So for the next maybe 20 seconds, the meditation instruction is to not pay attention. Okay, don't be aware, don't be mindful, don't make any effort. No awareness. See what happens. Since you're not paying attention, you're going to ignore me now, but you can stop meditating. So what do you notice? What do you notice when you try not to be aware? Hmm? Can't, do it. Can't do it. Right. What else do you notice? Directing the mind. You're directing the mind? Mm-hmm. So this is directing the mind. What else? I mean, it was basically answered. It's impossible not to be aware. Right? We're always aware of something. So that's the good news. You don't have to make any effort. You don't have to try. You just sit here, and even if you try not to be aware, you're aware. That's a good, a good thing. Since we're cultivating awareness all week, it's like you've, you've got PhDs in it. It's, it's, it's nature of the mind. So what we're looking at is where, what we're paying attention to, how we're paying attention, what arises in relationship to what we're paying attention to. Right? So we use that awareness to deepen that knowing, deepen that understanding, to look at our reactivity, to look at the ways that we're not here. I have a question. 
Can you hold it? Thank you. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the teaching where a lot of this practice comes from, the four foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha began with emphasizing establishing awareness and then becoming aware of the foundation of the body, using the body as a vehicle for establishing awareness. The body is always in the present moment. The senses are always in the present moment. The more we're inhabiting, feeling, sensing our body, the more we're establishing awareness right here. We call this an embodied practice. Often meditation has this idea of it's a sort of disembodied, out of blissful, out of the out of, out of the body experience, and it's actually very inhabited, grounded, tethered experience. The Buddha said, "There is one thing that, when cultivated and regularly practiced, leads to deep spiritual intention, to peace." to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, and to the culmination of wisdom and awakening, what is that one thing? It is mindfulness centered on the body. That's a pretty good sales pitch in my book for practicing mindfulness of the body. Peacefulness, clarity, clear comprehension, happiness here and now. So what does that mean? How is that possible to be present here well, everything that we can learn about ourselves and our experience and our mind is happening through the body. Mind and the body are not separate. And so we begin with the breath tomorrow as a way of centering and grounding that practice of establishing awareness. We've established a more sort of an open awareness today that's more inclusive of the field of our experience. And then we'll direct or invite you to to emphasize or preference certain aspects of your experience in the days to come, whether it's breath, sensations in the body, feelings, emotions, states of mind, to really bring that more precision and clarity to what's happening with these things in our relationship to them. So in the sutta he says something interesting. He says, the yogi, when the yogi, the meditator, acts clearly knowing when eating, when drinking, when tasting, clearly knowing when defecating and urinating, clearly knowing when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, resting, and keeping silent. Which basically means there's no breaks. There's no switching off. We're practicing cultivating awareness in every aspect of our lives, in everything that we do here. And from the perspective of mindfulness, nothing is, everything has equal value. Nothing more important than anything else. So even when you're in the bathroom, you say, oh, at least in the bathroom I can check out. No, you're present to peeing and pooping and washing and bathing and everything else in between. Why not? It's just another next thing that's happening. I don't usually talk about pooping in my Dharma talks, but why not? You know, it's an important part of our day. We'd be in trouble if we didn't. <clears throat> when I used to teach in Bodhgaya, there used to be Dharma graffiti in the bathrooms, and two of my favorites were one, pee here now, <clears throat> and the other, the other one was the place to let go. <clears throat> so when we're out in nature, it's a, as I said this morning, it's a beautiful place to, to feel the richness and the texture of our body as a vehicle for presence. Right? This incredibly sensitive, uh, sophisticated, uh, attuned sensory organism that we live in, that's attuned to sounds and smells and sights and colors and textures and flavors and scents. And, you know, to, to use all of the senses as a support. You know? So when you step outside and you feel the air, you feel the the coolness and the, the breeze and the, the sounds of the crickets and the frogs and the turkeys. And, and to, to allow, the, to, to sense what's happening in your body as you're experiencing those things. And one of the, one of the delights of cultivating mindfulness of the body is, is it, it increases our capacity for joy, for richness, for delight. Right? Where do we experience pleasure? It's in the body, the awareness of the body. Again, I seem to be quoting Mary Oliver a lot tonight, but she's such a great 
Dharma poet in many ways. This is a poem called Mindful, speaking to this delight that happens as we become more aware. Every day I see or I hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional or the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, and the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these, the untrimmable light of the world, the oceans shine, and the prayers that are made out of grass? So simple, and yet so profound, so beautiful. And as people spoke to this morning, inhabiting the body isn't necessarily an easy place to be. There's a lot of difficult sensations, pain, chronic pain, um, discomfort, agitation, restlessness. And so we get to see how practicing with the body really is a, is a, it's a, it's a training ground for how to be with life, how to be with stuff that we don't like, how to be with stuff that we don't want, how to be with things that are challenging, that are outside of our control, that we're scared of, that we feel helpless sometimes in response to. Right? Does that sound like some parts of your life? Yeah. So here we, here we get to explore right here. How, we, how, how am I when I'm afraid, when I don't have control, when my body's doing things that I'm not happy about? So I arrived on the retreat with a bug from travel, cold and thick-headed and tired and weak and all kinds of interesting symptoms. And say, like, oh, okay, so this is what's showing up. And from the perspective of mindfulness, it's not a problem. It's just another set of symptoms. I, I might have a preference to be healthy and vital and all of that, but that's not what's happening. And so, so and it's, it's, we can see moment to moment where, how we can be at peace with what's happening, or we can hate it and fight it and struggle and resist it and complain about it and collapse in self-pity and frustration. So the training here is a training to how to be with what's challenging in our lives. This is from Suzuki Roshi. He says, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there's some great difficulty in your life. Not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love and then you're tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital and there's nothing you can do. And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries and you just sit in the middle of it all And that's the moment you begin to understand the power of your practice. So there's a story a friend of mine told. He was in a monastery in Thailand and um, there's a lot of animals in in the monasteries and dogs usually. And this one particular day there was a couple of dogs barking quite furiously, ferociously across the courtyard, running across the courtyard. And monks went outside to watch, and there was a, a, they were chasing a snake, a poisonous snake, across the courtyard. And the snake was looking for somewhere safe to go. And there was a monk sitting under a tree in meditation, all still and quiet. And to a, to a, to a snake, that looked like a good bet. So he just snuck up under the monk's robes, uh, away from the dogs, and waiting for, the, you know, for some safe exit. And so the monk, being a meditator, just, you know, who knows what was going on in his mind, <laughs> but just sat still until at some point the dogs got bored and went away. And at some point the snake just uncoiled and, and went out from his robes and on he went. So we don't have too many poisonous snakes here, but uh, the point is that we can find that place of steadiness. No matter what's going on, it's possible, it's available with practice. That's why we practice. So the second foundation of mindfulness, and we'll again talk about this more in the days to come, we're tuning to uh, what's called a feeling tone. The the characteristic of each experience has a quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness or somewhat in between, somewhat neutral. And this is a, a subtle part of our experience, but an important part because when we're not mindful of the pleasantness or the unpleasantness, it so easily leads to reactivity. So you're sitting quietly, 
in meditation, just breathing, listening to sounds or whatever. And then you notice some twinging in your knee or an old injury, an old flares up in your back, an ache or tension. And, it's, and we don't notice the unpleasantness, but we're immediately reacting to it. And we're in, having stories and judgments and fears and worries. And, all because we, did, we, know, we didn't notice a little unpleasant sensation. And same with a pleasant sensation. And maybe you, you've got a yogi job and you smell something that the, 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 you, the, the cooks are cooking up for dinner. And we don't catch that, that pleasantness and we spend that whole time thinking and fantasizing and wanting and desiring and obsessing about what they're cooking. It happens more in the, in the retreat world um, where we might have a crush on somebody. We call it Vipassana romance. Where we have a, we have a momentary experience of somebody, catch them out of the corner of our eyes, a little pleasant form, something about them is appealing. And without, with, instead of just staying with the pleasantness, our mind starts to get involved. Oh, I wonder who this person is. I notice they're sitting next to me at dinner every day. That must mean something. Oh, and our shoes are together when we, when we in the cloakroom. That's really a sign. And we start fantasizing and imagining this whole life together and getting married and children and you know it's all wonderful. Right? It's all based on a momentary experience of pleasure or pleasantness. Right? So again, natural processes, not a problem, but to to see what happens, how far we can go from just a simple experience. And that's our lives, where we spend our lives in this proliferation of thought and fantasy. And the third foundation, awareness of states of mind, awareness of emotions. Again, for many of us, not such an easy place to be. And I work with a lot of students one-on-one, and I, this is probably the, one of the, the hardest places for people to uh, really establish awareness. And I was working with someone this week, and I was in, inviting them to, to feel um, their emotions that were related to a painful breakup, and they weren't able to really feel them. They could, they, they could only stay at the thought. This person was going through a painful breakup, and could only stay at, the, at the, the thinking about it rather than actually feeling the sorrow or the frustration. So there's a cartoon that speaks to my English uh, heritage. There's a man sitting at his office desk, and he's leaning over with his finger on the intercom to his secretary, and it says, Miss Jenkins, please get me in touch with my feelings. <laughs> so we're a bit like that, except we don't have secretaries and we, we have to practice instead. We have to turn our attention to our body because again, the body is the storehouse for our feelings, for our emotions. And one of the things that's really useful to watch when we're on retreat and in our lives, particularly with emotions, it comes up a lot, but it happens with anything, is what the Buddha called the second dart or the second arrow. So we might be feeling something like uh, spaciness or sleepiness or restlessness, which is already sort of unpleasant enough as it is. And then, and then a thought comes in, our mind comes in with, well, I shouldn't be sleepy. Nobody else is sleepy. I'm the only sleepy person here. Or I shouldn't be restless. I should be calm and peaceful. I'm on retreat for God's sake. I paid all this money. So we add suffering on top of suffering. It's called the second arrow. So notice how, when we, how you do that, how you add to the experience. Right? There's a simple experience. Tiredness, hungry, fearful, restless, sad, lonely, joyful. And then there's a, there's a judgment evaluation of it that adds another burden. And there's a fourth foundation to mindfulness which we'll be exploring uh, in the days to come called dharmas. So we cultivate, we establish, we abide in, develop this quality of awareness, this aspect of knowing our experience, knowing what's true, in order to facilitate clarity Insight. Vipassana means, as I said yesterday, to see clearly. And it can bring profound transformation when we have a moment of clarity or insight. 
when we see ourselves and our experience more directly. So I was working with somebody, this is a long time ago now, teaching MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, in a, a pain clinic at a local hospital here. And this woman was, uh, we'd been teaching the class about four or five weeks, and she um, reported uh, having a lot of pain. She, this, is, this clinic, this class was full of people who the medical system had pretty much given up with around, med, around the chronic pain. And so they come to the class, the meditation is the last resort. And uh, she came into the class one day very excited, and she said, you know, I had this really amazing experience. I was in meditation at home, and I was following this instruction of trying to be with my body and the sensations and the pain and not react to the pain and relax around the pain and just feel the immediacy of the sensation. And uh, she'd had chronic neck pain for 10 years. And she said, you know, what happened is I was able to, to let go of the fear momentarily, let go of the contraction and actually feel the actual painful, the, the heart of the sensation that I've been mostly in these last 10 years been afraid of and contracted around and resisting and hating. And she said, when I actually let myself feel that, it actually wasn't as bad as I thought it was. That it was actually quite tolerable. But everything else around it, the fear, the stories of what's going to happen in the next 10 years, and the judgment, and all, and the not knowing, and that was really challenging. And so, it's an example of how when we bring acute attention to our experience, there's so much can be revealed without us having to change or do anything about it, but really we're looking at and transforming our relationship to what's happening. So this path is a path of freedom. It liberates the ways that we're adding to our distress. So there's a poem from the poet Hafez. He puts it this way. He says, um, you have all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. Right? But of course we do. A little bit of fear, a little bit of worrying about the future, a little bit of, um, I don't know, comparing how it should be, our expectations, and we start to feel miserable. Right? And he says, but you also have the ingredients to turn your life into joy. Mix them and mix them. So presence, kindness, patience, acceptance, love. So there's a world, there's a there's a phrase in psychology that they use that I that. that that I think highlights a, a skill that arises with mindfulness and it's called response flexibility, which is the, is the capacity of the mind to have a, as it says, a flexible or creative response to a stimulus that's often difficult. So um, uh, the writer Viktor Frankl puts it very eloquently. He says, between stimulus and response, so when you stimulus anything that's happening like a sound and our response to it, between stimulus and response there is a space. In that space lies our freedom and our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our happiness. So this really kind of outlines in a way one of the principles of this practice. Between stimulus and response there is a space, there is room for clarity, for knowing, for understanding, to not be caught so much in our reactivity and to find a response that brings about ease or well-being or happiness. So there are many other things that the Buddha speaks to in this, in this teaching of, of the Four Foundations. Um, one of the things he points to, and I'll, I'll close with this last few comments, is he, he says the meditator abides independently. One practicing mindfulness abides independently. Uh, and what's he pointing to here? He's pointing to, again to this, this, this capacity. And when we become mindful, there is a space that grows. 
a spaciousness, an ease, a sense of um, clarity, where we become less entangled in our stuff, less identified with our fears or our worries or our burdens or our challenges. Not that we become detached and aloof and dismissive, but we, there's a certain, we have a certain capacity to hold it. And that, that so it's, it's the difference between being lost in your thought. So remember the last time you were consumed in a thought, you probably only have to go about, back about five minutes. Right? You were just, you know, you were listening to this talk and suddenly you were redecorating your bathroom. You know, like, well, what happened? Right? We get consumed, we get engaged, we get embroiled, we get identified with that experience. You know, it happens a lot when we're in conversation, we get, we get identified, attached to our point of view. Maybe there's something in this talk you're saying, no, that, you're disagreeing with it, like, that sounds like a lot of rubbish to me. Right? And you get identified with your position. Right? And then there's a certain tightness and contraction that happens around that. So the, that process of identification or what the Buddha speaks to as grasping, attachment, uh, is happening so many moments through the day. So what, partly what mindfulness is doing you know, as, as, as a support for wisdom, we're, we're looking at this attitude, this responsiveness to experience. And, we, and we're particularly curious about are we creating more seeds, planting more seeds of controlling, fixing, tightening, grasping around something, wanting it to be a certain way? or resisting, hating, avoiding, rejecting, blaming. And these two poles of, of the, the wanting mind and the, the avoidant mind. To notice in any moment when we identified, we get caught, we get stuck, we cling, and we get, we get consumed in reactivity. And that's what we call suffering. That's what we call pain. That's what we call life. But there's also another, the Buddha's pointing to another way. With presence we can see all the, the ways, moment to moment, how we get caught in different things, in different reactivities. And again, we don't have to do anything with it, we just have to, awareness, once awareness illuminates something, it's almost like the thing unfolds by itself. So a good example that, that happens for me a lot is I can be late for something and I'm driving somewhere to, to a meeting or to teach and I often hit traffic when I'm coming to teach here in the evenings and, and then of course I hit traffic when just, just when I'm thinking I'm going to be on time and then all of a sudden there's a, there's a bottleneck and that first moment is a contraction like, oh no, I'm going to be late, that's a drag, I should be late and all the thoughts about being late and I should have left earlier and how come I'm not organized enough, blah, blah, blah. And that's just painful contraction reaction to what's happening. And then at some point it's like, oh, this is suffering. This is me being caught, me identified with, with some idea I have about how I want it to be, some preference. It's not happening. There's no point in getting frustrated because nothing's not going to make the traffic go any quicker. I mean, it's a benign example, but it's, it's one that happens uh, certainly happens to me a lot. So to pay attention in your days here, notice when you get contracted. Maybe it's a painful memory about something that's happening at work or in your relationship or with your health or with your children or your parents. Notice how the mind coalesces. Bring awareness to that. Feel it. Feel the tightening. Feel the contraction. See what happens as you just let that unfold in awareness. And over time, just like everything, these storms come and go and the space starts to come in. We see, oh, this is painful to hold on in contraction, in tightness, in resistance. So what happens is we, we you know, in, in this day-to-day, really what you're doing is you're planting these momentary seeds of mindfulness. And it may feel like it's just teeny little drops in a huge bucket that's never going to fill. But actually over time, as we develop more presence, more awareness, as our mind becomes more balanced, energy becomes more balanced, concentration grows, awareness 
a sense of presence establishes itself. We begin to abide more in this, in this quality of knowing. It becomes more the reference point. Not the content of our mind, not the stuff of our lives, but actually awareness itself becomes the orientation, the ground in which everything else is happening. And when that becomes more the, the reference point or the center, then there's a lot more peace available, a lot more clarity, a lot more wisdom, discernment. We become less embroiled in the suffering of our lives. As the Buddha said, meditate, live quietly, be quiet, and do your work with mastery, like the moon come out from behind the clouds and shine. So awareness is like, this, is like the moon or the sun. It sh- illuminates our experience, illuminates our life, illuminates what's happening here. So let's sit for a few moments. close with a a line from Jules Renard, French author. If I had my life to live over again, I would ask that nothing be changed, but that my eyes be opened wider. attention. So time now for some walking meditation. We'll come back in here at nine. Actually, one quick announcement. Um, We've put some uh, on the board outside on the left. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.